Hi, I'm Howard County Council Member Christiana Rigby. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson and Alex Butler this week. Gentlemen, this is the third installment of Conduit Street After Dark. And I don't know, I like the first two. I've gotten some good feedback. But Michael, we are still remote, obviously. We've roped Alex in this week. We'll talk a little bit about why it's been tough to get Alex uh, roped in for one of these. But he's been doing long days and long nights in in the testimony table or in the Zoom room, I guess, this year. I don't know. I'll say we're recording on Thursday, and this just doesn't feel quite right to me. I mean, I'm not even in Annapolis, and I'm not anywhere near the karaoke bar, which is kind of like a little bit of our Thursday night signature for about this time of legislative session is, you know, belt out a terrible song in front of everybody and sort of make, you know, make a joke of yourself as a way to get some of that steam off. Yeah, it's sort of a rite of passage, right? So Alex, how are you? Thank you so much for joining. As Michael said, you have been really busy, uh, a lot of bills for you, just like the rest of us. But I feel like you more so have been entrenched in a lot of these deep policy issues, a lot of the environmental portfolio. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much. I know you're tired. Thanks for joining us after dark. Well, thanks for having me, guys. You know, first time on the podcast after dark. I, I agree with with everything that you've said thus far, Michael. You know, this it, it, we're missing the staple events, right? It doesn't feel quite like a normal session. And also, just with my portfolio, you know, there isn't one easy bill in the in the mix. And I, I wish <laughs> that some of them were a little easier to handle. But the uh, you know, getting the background information and making sure that we get you know the best position for counties out there is is uh, it, you know, it takes a lot on some of these issues. Always towing the company line. I like that a lot. And I think we'd be remiss if we did not open up with vaccines. This is the biggest topic in county land over the past week and really over the past few months. But, Michael, this week, the MAKO Legislative Committee, they meet every Wednesday during session. Vaccines dominated the conversation up front this week, and MAKO sent a letter. We had a lot of county folks sign on. I know you've been following this issue closely, and you're working directly with county leaders and the administration, which is really good. But tell us a little bit about what's going on with vaccines and, and, and you know, MAKO, what did we do this week? And we got a response as well from the administration. First of all, to set the stage, I think getting our residents vaccinated quickly and fairly and safely has just leapt to the top of everybody's priority list. So our county officials typically have to wear lots of hats. They're, they're worried about their budget. They're worried about zoning. They're worried about their schools and so forth. And through these last several months, it's been all the COVID variations on all the things you ordinarily do, but that's kept everybody's plate very full. But these last few weeks, the number one question that people are calling a county commissioner about or they're emailing their county council member or you get stopped in the grocery store about is, I'm worried about vaccination. Um, my appointment got canceled or why can't I get in or where do I go or 
all those sorts of things. Like everybody's got this as a high priority. I'm worried about my, my grandmother or whatever. So it's the nature of this issue that has it at the top of everybody's list. So when you get together with your your colleagues from other counties and so forth, of course, this is something they want to talk about. You know, typically our meeting is supposed to be, let's take positions on bills, but they wanted to talk about vaccination stuff. And leading into this week, we had a letter signed by elected officials from almost every county basically trying to lay out some of these county priorities and, and try and be clear about them with the administration, to the governor, but also to the, the high leadership in the administration. And the message, you, you can read the details on on the MAKO blog. The full letter is there, a letter back from, from the, the health secretary uh, that lays out what the state is doing and so forth. There's more detail in, in stuff that came out today from the governor himself. But I think the real message was we at the local level need as much clarity as we can get about what our allocations are going to be so that we can set up a process that our residents can count on. And if there were any message to take away, I think that's really the centerpiece. Let us know as clearly and as soon as you can how many doses we're going to get, and then we can set up the appointments for the people to get them. We know how many take to, to site A and how many to site B, how many to site C, and so forth. But until we know how many we're going to get, we can't really build out the system for it. And it's been frustrating. And and uh, I don't know. I think I think we're we're on our way to making things better, but it's a high priority to do so quickly. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, you can really tell knowing these local elected officials, and obviously we work closely with them, you can tell the passion in their voices that this is really something that affects them deeply. I mean, we know that we have constituents calling, you know, day by day asking about vaccines and trying to sign up. And we want to make sure that once we we create a system for people to sign up, that we actually have the vaccine to honor that appointment. And that's been a challenge. But but for me, the big takeaway is you can really tell this is something that county leaders are really, really passionate about because it affects their constituents. And that's what county government is all about. That's very fair. And the wheels are turning on this. So it's it's not like we're screaming into the void. The administration, I think, has end goals that line up really, really well with what our county leaders' end goals are. We all want the residents in our community to get access to the vaccine safely and quickly, right? So the mechanics of getting here to there are difficult and they vary by jurisdiction. And that makes this tough to pull together as quickly as we need to. So, you know, we we need to get our health officers plugged in in the planning, um, but getting early notice and some certainty sooner, that, that, that sounds like it's way down in the weed stuff, but that's really foundational stuff. So one of the things we heard from the governor today, and I think uh, in a meeting that I had with administration officials at the federal level today, I think we're going to start to see some multi-week projections for the distributions from the federal government to the state of Maryland, and then from the state of Maryland to its many jurisdictions, including their health departments. So I don't, I can't tell you how big of a relief it might be for the health officer in a given county to have a sense of, 
here's the floor for this week and the week after and the week after we now know that what you're going to be sent is going to be at least whatever, you know, 800 doses. So plan on that. And if we get more, we'll send them to you, but plan on that from here. What that reduces is the worst case. I mean, the worst case is somebody's great grandmother has to have her appointment canceled for her second dose, right? Nobody wants that kind of a bad outcome and she's put all her eggs in that basket and we need to get her that second dose quickly. We don't want to have to patch that together after the fact. So I think we're working toward the same goal. We had a good meeting on Wednesday with senior leadership in the administration and some of our health officers who are nuts and bolts, not not the political side, but the nuts and bolts side. So I, I'm optimistic that we're, we're all pointing in the same direction and uh, I think got a lot of things on the table this week. Yeah, and I'll say too, I mean, I know Alex, you're, again, you've been slammed, but I know you were sitting in on the roundtable that we had with Senator Van Hollen. We had one with Senator Cardin previously, but we had a roundtable for county leaders with Senator Van Hollen. He talked a lot about vaccines. He also talked about some infrastructure items, and I know there were specific questions about some of the environmental and wastewater issues, but that was interesting to hear as well. Alex, any big takeaways from Senator Van Hollen? You know, it sounds like he's pretty plugged in, and I thought that was a really good way to to get in touch with county folks directly. It was a really good meeting. Yeah, well, let me just say, I mean, Senator Van Hollen, you know, big thanks to him for, for joining the meeting. And he knew whenever a county uh, a county official raised an issue, well, I've got something going on in my district, in my county. And he knew he knew what the what the topic was and he knew what sort of the federal action was and what was going to happen next. So, uh, you know, appreciate uh, the senator taking his time out to speak to county leaders. And I think that they I think that was a really productive conversation. Michael, I thought it was really productive. I mean, any any big takeaways for you? I think these are always productive to have this direct link. And maybe it's easier now, Michael, with Zoom. Honestly, I think that is one of the takeaways is a virtual connection that people find appetizing uh, has turned into transforming your ability to reach lots of interest groups. I, I would say one big takeaway is the a U.S. senator who has a background in the state legislature, and both of our U.S. senators do, you can tell that they understand where county governments fit in the fabric of services that people care about. So I think that's an important takeaway. We, you know, we, we like to talk about people who have a, a background in local government per se and what they bring to their future offices. In this case, having been a member of the state legislature and a leader in the state legislature and then gone on to Congress and then the U.S. Senate, uh, both of our U.S. senators know how woven in county governments are to the things that our shared residents really care about. And that I think that showed in both of these town halls. The senators like understood indirectly they're reaching a really important audience by way of these county leaders. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the the virtual ability you see that, you know, our delegation in, in Washington is joining a lot of the the local delegation meetings in the General Assembly, that access is is really important. And I think Zoom plays a big part in that. But Alex, I'm here to talk about deer, right? I'm here to talk about deer. And that might be, everybody might be just shaking their head and saying, okay, he's finally gone off the rails. But 
We, Michael and I, we talk on this podcast every week about the big issues this session, and we know there are some really, really important issues this year, but what the heck is going on with deer venison? Because I feel like I've seen multiple venison bills, and I know you've been <laughs> reading these bills, Alex. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? So it's not big in that it is on everyone's minds in the state. It's in, you know, the the big news news operations are reporting on it daily. But what it is big is that there are several bills in this area. So you're right. Deer is a, is a hot topic this year, I guess you could say. <laughs> it's uh, we got several bills, everything from, you know, Sunday hunting to you know local issues and beyond. And, you know, one of them is uh, a bill put in that would allow counties to operate a certain venison donation program. So it would explicitly allow these counties to operate this program where they provide hunters with a reimbursement for their donation to local food banks through a county program. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's an interesting issue because when counties had previously attempted to operate these programs, the state raised some concerns related to the natural resources article. I think this bill attempts to clarify that issue. But like you said, it's one of many in this area, this session. All right. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, though, this year, more than ever, I mean, I don't you know. My family has made multiple donations to the food banks in our part of the state, feeling like, I mean, that's the kind of service that is in most critical need at a time of widespread unemployment and economic distress. So, I mean, I have to think that like everybody's interest in supporting that exact kind of public service is maybe sharper and higher right now than ever. So that's gotta be part of the reason why there's, you know, there's an aggressive interest and let's, let's iron out these laws. If, if ordinarily, we don't want people, I mean, I guess I understand it, right? The state law says you can't go shoot a deer and then sell the venison. That's basically the law. And But the idea of donating it to a food bank and getting something for it isn't exactly the same thing as mercenary deer hunting, I guess. Right, right. So, the, you know, the, the bill would help clarify that counties can operate these programs, which are really a twofer, right? It's a little bit of deer management, and it's a little bit about getting – some, you know, some material, some product into local food banks for folks that need it. Well, I'm sympathetic to the idea, you know, independent of of your thoughts about <laughs> about hunting or whatever the like the health concerns generally might be about having too many motivated hunters. I don't I don't know what what the theory behind the law originally is, but at the moment I, I'm down for this bill. Um, let's 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 round off some of these edges and let a well-intentioned program like that, let's let them carry on, I think. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is, I think a lot of people would probably say, why do you need to go get a bill passed to do this kind of stuff, right? But the fact is, Alex, we need bills to do these kind of things. And again, I don't think anyone thought that venison would be a big issue this session, but it's come up in multiple counties and you need bills to, to do this kind of stuff, right? This is an issue with the state when it comes to hunting and how we, we, we deal with deer and venison. So what, what is the quirk there of why we need a, a bill to do stuff like this at the local level? Well, when you have general prohibitions on certain activities and that, you know, it gets applied to, you know, what we're trying to do here, you know, we need some of these, you know, first off, I only deal with quirky bills, right? My portfolio is 
just lends itself to only have these sort of you know maybe it's a it's a one-off issue or it's it's something simple that we just want to make sure if we can allow it but it conflicts with this article and that and, and and then we have to figure out a really narrow really tailored approach to make sure that we can keep these reasonable practices you know in line with existing state statute that is both the art and science of state legislation i mean you know people think of like really high profile things of do you allow this or not? Or do you have that or not? Or do you tax this or not? Or that sort of thing. But like so much of policy at the level we deal with actually ends up in those narrow margins. Well, this is the general rule, but I'm sure you didn't want to mess this up. So can we fix it so it doesn't mess this thing up? And then lo and behold, it's a bill, it's a work group, it's a handshake, and then it's a bill signing ceremony sometime in the spring. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's typically typically how it goes. So, I mean, Alex, I mean, j- jumping in a little bit more to your issue areas this year, recycling and wastewater treatment are two big issues in the environmental world. It's stuff that you've been covering. Let's talk a little bit about some of the specific issues that, that you've been into and what's kept you so busy. What's going on in that general world of, you know, recycling and wastewater treatment doesn't sound, you know, to some people like that's a really hot topic, but it, but it definitely is. And it's a big part of what county governments do. Yeah, well, you're right, Kevin. I mean, you know, the environment portfolio, especially for counties, I mean, it's, it's local government, it's communities, it's everything. It's fr- everything from, you know, your wastewater treatment plant funding to your waste reduction and recycling to your planning and zoning and beyond. And I think this year, uh, the Environment and Transportation Committee in particular has taken it upon themselves to really look at waste reduction and recycling and how we can better reform that. Um, there are a multitude of bills across a variety of categories, and they're dealing with, you know, plastic waste in our, in our waste stream, uh, you know, reforming our Recycling Act and, and beyond. The reason counties are in the middle of so much of this discussion is not so much yeah, it's not so much because of the sort of deep underlying policy, but we're there as practical actors, right? We we run the landscapes. Um, we basically, you know, we we run landfills that are the place where a lot of solid waste ends up if it's not recycled or diverted to other places. Um, we also are really the chief actors. M- molding and executing a recycling plan at the countywide level. So we're, you know, we're charged with these responsibilities. That's not the sexy side of environmental policy, but the practical practical side's very important too. So we're at the table on all this kind of stuff. Alex, I'm interested, I mean, I know I know this is kind of like a low-hanging fruit sort of question, the the novice question about litter and waste reduction and so forth, but it seems like more years than not, there's a proposal in to do like a, a deposit on cans and bottles. You pay a nickel or a dime or something like that if you buy a container, a soda can or that sort of thing. So if we seen that bill this year, I, I think I recall seeing it on the synopsis. Um, is that is that something they're talking about or is this just sort of a, a, a you know one and done conversation? Yep. So there is a bottle bill in, a bottle deposit bill in again this year. Um, you know, there have been several iterations of the bill in previous years, previous sessions. 
And, you know, this year's is the same as last year. It would, you know, mandate that the Maryland Department of the Environment, you know, take up one of these bottle bottle deposit programs and, and institute one statewide. You know, this is the program where I know I, I spoke with, you know, some my mom and she said she remembers, you know, collecting bottles and, you know, returning them and collecting, you know, the sort of five cent or whatever it was at the time fee, uh, you know, you know, reimbursement for returning those bottles. It's an incentive, essentially a citizen incentive program to find find bottles, find cans and return them to whether it be your local grocery store or wherever these sites are that you can and then you can claim your deposit either at the cash register or at a machine. And it's it's a it's a really hyper local incentive to reduce the amount of bottles and, and cans in the in the general area in the general public. Right. So I, I claim similar recollections to your family members that my my first teenage job was at a, an IGA grocery store as I guess a bag boy, but I wrote out lots of slips for 80 cents at a time for people returning their eight packs of returnable glass bottles. It was totally a thing where I grew up and in lots of the country. The arrow's been pointing the other direction, though. As I, I mean, I think the I, I grew up in the state of Ohio. They don't have it anymore. We're down to only a handful of states who do. I think it's been a long time since a state adopted a policy like this. Is Maryland going to be the beginning of a, of a wave? Uh, is this bill moving this year, you think? I think the bottle deposit bill has a tough route to passage. You know, I think it, it in general, the concept is is intriguing, right? You know, like we said, you can you can pick up your bottles, take them into the grocery store, get your deposit. But when we have the system we have right now with single stream recycling and people are so in tune with, I'm going to throw it all in the bin and somebody's going to come by and pick it up or, you know, every Tuesday or whatever your day is, you take it to your local recycling area and then they handle it from there. So it's, yeah. it's contrary to a bottle deposit program. And counties have invested significant money in their infrastructure to process these materials. It, it would be really tough after spending as much time and energy as we have to become, in a lot of ways, a national leader with the amount that we're able to divert and get into true recycling and so forth to then turn around and say, well, let's take a lot of that would-be recycling stream and we'll treat it differently, put it in the back of your car, drive it to a redemption center someplace is a, is a whole different sort of ask. So it's, I don't know. It's, it, it's an interesting policy issue. I remember bills from years ago that had all the details of how the program was going to, and that turned into a liability because the details were difficult. This year's bill just sort of says, we'll leave the details to a, a commission or a work group or something like that. Right. Right. It's it's left up to the stakeholders. It's left up to, you know, sort of regulations from the department. It would say the bill says we're establishing a bottle deposit. Here's the fee and here's the goal for recycling. And that's that's really everything else is left up to the regulations. OK, so if if a bottle deposit or a bottle bill or whatever you want to call that isn't isn't the, the winning ticket this year, um, are there other ideas in waste reduction sort of that? That, that whole universe of well, we want less stuff that ends up in our, you know, in our either incinerators or in our landfills and so forth. So waste reduction as a goal, are there other, other ideas to try and get at that objective? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, in general, there are a variety of different options when you're looking to reform sort of the waste reduction and recycling 
you know, programs across the state. One of them that's come up this session and is actually it's it's going across the nation. We have uh, a concept called extended producer responsibility. So what that means is, uh, well, essentially, bottom line is in the state of Maryland, recycling programs are upside down. They're having to landfill uh, perfectly good recyclable products in some cases because China is simply not taking our products all of the time. We have to have top grade stuff to be able to sell it uh, and, and make a profit and actually decrease some of these costs of mandated recycling programs. So the question isn't how do we break even anymore? It's how do we minimize losses and not have to find a new funding or cut service? So this concept of extended producer responsibility, it takes the the burden, which is right now on local governments and it's on taxpayers to handle the waste stream. And it sort of includes producers, people that make packaging, people that make, uh, you know, all these plastic products, all these things that are not easily handled, it takes that and makes them responsible for the products they create and introduce into the general public and then inevitably into the waste stream. So the producers should play a role in minimizing that waste and helping with the costs of disposal or recycling. It's their product and they should help with the end of life cycle. So the bill this year, it's extended producer responsibility and it would create a program you know through with state oversight where these producers are made responsible for the products and they would have to submit payments to uh, they could form a producer responsibility organization and they would then from there a nonprofit would reimburse local governments for the burden of waste reduction and recycling that they're undertaking right now I guess there's sort of a, a question of philosophy behind all that that at the moment, we more or less say, hey, it's our fault. We're all consumers. We buy this stuff that's wrapped in plastic or comes in cans and bottles and the like. And it's it's effectively, it's our fault we bought the stuff. So we'll all pay our taxes and we'll pay our tipping fees or whatever. And that'll that'll basically serve to operate the costs of our landfills and our recycling centers and the like that you know, it's our job to pick up that cost. But I, I guess this theory is the companies who decide to package their things in these plastics and so forth, they bear some of this responsibility too. They've made a decision to do stuff that ends up in landfills or is challenging or difficult to recycle and so forth. So they have a share of this. And I guess that's the philosophy behind this bill, which I find pretty interesting. I think you're right on both accounts. It's consumers have limited options, right? When you go to the store, it's and you go to the grocery store, it's food and all kinds of plastic. And your choice is plastic or plastic. So right. having the producer, you know, with some mandated goals, you know, it's going to incentivize them to number one, change their packaging and do something more friendly for their environment and something that waste streams can handle better. And number two, it's holding them accountable and providing, you know, reducing the financial responsibility of taxpayers and local governments. Yeah, I think this is also it's, it's a fascinating issue, right? Because I'm sure that all of the producers are lining up and saying this is a great idea, right? No, of course they're not. But this all goes back 
to the producers. I mean, they had a coordinated effort some years ago to sort of shift the public ideology onto it's not the producer's responsibility. This is a consumer issue and you all need to recycle and do the right thing. It's not on us. It's, it's on the consumer. So I find it interesting policy wise that the, the tables have sort of begun to turn back onto the producers and saying, hey, you all have a play, a role to play in this, right? It's not just the consumers. You should step up to the plate and you should be responsible for some of this. I find that a fascinating policy issue and I'm really interested to see how it plays out. So Alex, there's, there's surely even more stuff within the universe of waste reduction and solid waste and, and, and so forth. I mean, multiple bills in that topic, uh, other things that are sitting out there that are at least worth like, you know, making a casual mention of. Yeah, we've got, we've got several bills out there in waste reduction recycling. We've got one that's going to require counties to address uh, mattresses and the impact Hmm. they have on landfills and cutting down on how many mattresses we have in landfills. There's another bill that require reporting on the life of turf fields and the, the, the life cycle they go through from installation to the inevitable, you know, reuse, um, the infill reuse in another field. And then eventually the, um, you know, reuse, at, you know, maybe they take the, you know, you know, portions of it and reuse it in paintball facilities or, you know, batting cages. Mm. And, and then eventually, um, you know, as the ownership of the material goes through the process, it, uh, eventually, um, either the landfill or the recycling of of that material. So we've got a reporting requirement there, and we also have a bill in uh, dealing with reporting of recycling for businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, I think a lot of counties are trying to get uh, their recycling rates to the state mandated limit, and they need information to certify that they're doing that. Uh, and this bill would require businesses to report their recycling information. So how much a business is recycling? You think about a typical office building and how much, you know, how many bottles and cans they go through on a daily basis. Well, that's, you're gonna put them in the blue bins, they're getting into the single stream, they're getting recycled. So counties, I, I think, would like to have that included in their, uh, their recycling rate and be able to show that to the state. It's always a pretty lively area, I think. And it, I mean, it's one that that I think our residents can understand that legislators you know, want to be responsive to. And then I think, you know, we as the stewards of these programs, we want to be able to, to run the show effectively, responsibly, deliver for, for our residents and for our taxpayers. And you need to bundle all that stuff together. It's It makes it one of those, like you said, it's there's no easy topics in your portfolio, and this is like a good good illustration of why that's so. There's nothing here is super simple. Nothing super simple, and there are hidden costs at every turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 always interesting recycling. I mean, we know that overseas, a lot of countries have said we don't we're not going to take all this material anymore. So really, it's forced counties and states to sort of take another look. And Alex, there's another bill that would take another look at recycling in Maryland, right? This is sort of a commission that would look at what we're doing, maybe make some recommendations on how we can do things better. 
And I think this is all along the lines of what you've been talking about, maybe more responsibility for the the producers and then maybe for, you know, the business community. They play a role in this, too. But I think this would just be let's take a fresh look at recycling in Maryland and let's see what we need to do to keep up with the times. That's something that we talk about a lot is government reacting to things in a timely manner. This this there's a bill that would do just that. Right. Yeah, I think periodic updates to Maryland's, you know, prime recycling law, the Maryland Recycling Act, you know, I think, you know, regular updates to that make sense in a lot of ways. And this stakeholder group is going to do just that, you know, counties, municipalities, local government, in combination with industry stakeholders in the state would come together and do just that, make a periodic update to the Maryland Recycling Act and, you know, address some of these concerns that are clearly floating around. So we have recycling bills, we have recycling mattresses, we have venison bills, <laughs> wastewater treatment issues. I mean, Alex, I don't think you sleep very much. I know that for a fact. And I guess, gentlemen, the, the general theme here, I mean, Michael, you and I have opined about what this session will look like. How many bills will we see? Will there be fewer bills? Will they you know, focus on the big issues, so to speak? But from what Alex is saying, it sounds like there are a lot of bills. There has not really been a drop in the number of bills introduced. And, you know, that that's sort of been a theme that we've talked about. And we haven't seen, you know, a, a discernible drop in the amount of bills that are introduced, even under these weird circumstances. I've lost count, but I know the House is up north of 1,300 bills introduced already. And I, I've lost count of where the Senate is at this point, but... If if at one point back in November, December, we were probably telling our faithful podcast listeners that this is going to be a narrow and focused session and the word is going out, be judicious, you know, get your bills in early and we're going to focus on, on important, you know, high gravity topics. Well, we're we're into the thousands, not just the you know the highest gravity topics. And I, I, I don't mean to demean any particular bill, but when all the ideas go in, we end up with what looks like a totally normal session. The the committee meetings are hours and hours long and their their voting sessions are, you know, tied up with lots of complicated issues and so forth. I guess the most interesting thing to me at this point is what are they going to do with the floor? Because last I last I recall, the rules for the floor in the House and the Senate were, I mean, that's where they're most concerned about everybody being crowded together. So they want to have short windows of time to do work on the floor of the House and Senate. What do you do with all these bills that are going to need amendments and questions and debate and so forth? How do you how do you do that in little two-hour windows for floor work? I don't know. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot is there's got to be a lot of calculating going on in terms of, you know, controversial bills that they know are going to take time. Alex, I know there are some controversial environmental bills that will likely take time on the floor. There's a big climate change bill, et cetera. But is that the general vibe that you've gotten to is that hey, we know that we don't have you know, unlimited time on the floor this year. We need to try and prioritize bills that don't have a lot of opposition or aren't overly complicated. And as you've mentioned before, most of the bills in your portfolio are pretty complicated. But has that sort of been the sentiment you know, in the committees that you're following too with these bills is that we, we need to try and find some consensus before we bring these to the floor? 
No, I think you're, I think you're both right. I think you know number one, it's not exclusively big ticket items this session, and you know number two, yes, some of these bills, you know, I think uh, leadership is encouraging you know the members of the House and the Senate to hammer out the details as best as possible. You know, talk with the sponsor, talk with the subcommittee, talk with the committee. You know, make sure this this issue is you know, fully fleshed out and, and we're ready to go because you're right. We, we can't do the, the hours on hours of floor debate on any one particular issue, uh, because we quite literally don't have the time. It's been a recurring theme as we talk through the lead up to this session and during this session, how's this going to work? And uh, you know, I, we, we poked fun about this last week about, well, on our you know six or eight or 10 things we've tried to talk about last week, we came away with, I guess I just don't know. I guess we don't know. I mean, here, we got to see how this plays out, but it just doesn't feel like there's the capacity there to, to really, like, to, to dig in and solve and then manage on the floor all of these topics. And, you know, Alex, you, you ran by a list of things that we could conceivably talk about on the podcast tonight. And I mean, the list just goes on and on and not one of those topics is simple. Like, like you've said, there's, there's nuance and, and some open discussion and two sides on almost all these topics. Um, we'll see, uh, you know, we got, you got a committee that's really eager to get into waste issues and, and, and recycling and the like, and hats off to them, but they've got a big portfolio of other complicated things to tend to as well. So I, I don't know. I, um, this may be a session we've heard, we've heard one committee chair use this phrase multiple times. He's saying, you know, good bills are going to die this year. And I, I think that message is getting at the things that we're saying that the logistics just aren't in place to give the, the full-throated consideration to every single topic. So some of the questions are going to be, would next year be okay for this issue, even as important as we believe it is? Sometimes the answer is probably going to be yes. Yeah, I agree, no doubt. I mean, the time constraints, certainly, there are a number of big issues that we have to get through. Alex, I know you're busy. I hope that you're getting some sleep. You seem like you're always jammed up in committees. You're always in the, the late night committee sessions. But thank you so much for taking the time today. We always enjoy hearing what's going on in your neck of the woods when it comes to policy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Michael, any closing thoughts before we let everybody go on the, the third installment of the Conduit Street podcast after dark? I think I'm gonna need to replenish my home supply. I'm I'm done with the top shelf and I'm down into stuff I can't even pronounce. It's not a good scene. So I'll do better by next week. All right. We will hope Michael gets to the the store to to replenish his spirits. But we'll leave it there for tonight. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media. Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Michael and Alex, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.